Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Folding Pocket Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects both real and metaphorical. Each episode we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hi, Kat. Hello, hello Charles. And hello. how are you hello. both this week? Well, fresh as a daisy. I've got a sore hip. Oh. I'm hovering, I think, on the brink of orthopaedic collapse. Yeah, you need oh, a good no. acupuncturist to sort you out. I don't think it's that. My knees are awful. Yes. I can feel the bone grating where once cartilage or whatever it is Ooh. kind of... But my hip has gone and I'm beginning to limp a bit like Jacob at the brook. But um, I've seen a lot of bones. Have you ever seen bones that have got arthritis, the skeletons? No, I don't. They're all shiny because you've worn away that bit in between so it's oh. like polished and shiny on the hip joint. It's quite fascinating. <laughs> Maybe not what you want to hear. I know, I mean... Uh, Relevant to perhaps what you're going to talk about, but there comes a point, doesn't it, where you think you need the craftsman's art to interfere with nature's failure and try and yeah, compensate. Just, there's no point in suffering, and you must get to a doctor sooner rather than later. I don't. I don't. I'm English. <laughs> I wait till my leg has fallen yeah, exactly. off. Exactly. Yeah. along. <laughs> Excellent. Now you're still on your book tour, aren't you? So you're still. Yes. Zooming around the country, so we're back in Wiltshire again this week, mm-hmm. in the West Country. Are you enjoying well, it? Yeah, I like Wiltshire. I like this part of the world. I don't know it very well, but I like it very much. Also, it's kind of military, isn't it, around here? Chippenham and... Yes, yeah. and you've got Salisbury Plain, Warminster, exactly. So I live nearby and we have we hear the gunfire from Salisbury Plain from all the exercises. Yeah. So we have all the plane going across, which... Keeps you on your toes. It does a little bit. Would yeah. you like to have a go? In a tank. I don't know, because you can do that, can't you? You can do sort of tank experience. Really? Yeah. Yes. Maybe we should have a day out. I had a day with <laughs> the SAS doing stuff, and that was rather daunting. What did you do? Well, I nearly shot myself, which was not on the schedule. They had a, a briefcase that when you press a lever on the handle, it turns into a machine gun. Shut up. Yeah. And really? I, I put the barrel into my uh, shoulder. Right. And luckily, the trigger was the wrong way around and somebody whipped it off me. So I, I would have failed at the very first hurdle. <laughs> so you could tell like something from Q would give you. From yes. I think that is it. That's what, when you're watching those briefcases, I don't think they have pens and paper in them when, you know, with secret service bodyguards. They're actually machine guns waiting. I think some of them are. Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Do you know how to recognize one? Can you remember it well enough so that you can. No, it, it was such a traumatic moment. But what I do remember is how <laughs> incredibly strong the SAS guys were. I was put into some sort of machine. Man costume, and it still hurt when they hit me. So I didn't. Really? Yes. So what did you have? It was a day induction into, or you were just basically a, I had toyed a friend with by the SAS. 
I was humiliated Eight. by the SAS and, and realised that... I mean, having been somebody who dodged the cadet force at Eton, I wasn't obvious officer material. There are websites in which you're humiliated by the SAS. Did you know <laughs> yes. that? Maybe they didn't... No one had a camera, did they, as well no. as a machine gun. Well, I hope not. <laughs> it's going to surface one day, isn't it? <laughs> going to be searching Rabbit for it now. Hole detectives. My Disappointing yes. Day in Hereford <laughs> yeah. by C. Spencer. I'd love it. I could just see you on television going, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I feel like this conversation is leading really nice into my first topic. So shall I just go for it? Please. So not to sort of, well, actually, maybe to make you feel better about your leg falling off, I'm going to be talking about prosthetics. <laughs> but this was actually because I fell into that rabbit hole when I was meant to be looking at sugar a few weeks ago. And I spent almost a day just looking at false teeth, because obviously that's also a form of prosthetics. And I think I mentioned George Washington's false teeth that people used to think were wood but actually were of real human teeth. I had a nightmare about that. Seriously. Because you, you told me about it and I looked it up and there was this awful picture of George Washington's false teeth with actual pulled teeth. Yes. And just from slaves, actually. Yeah, it was horrible. Actually, they came to me in a nightmare. Yeah, I'm sorry. But, right. <laughs> but that was actually a huge, big industry. And people were especially also selling teeth from Battle of Waterloo, going back to that again. So if you remember, right at the start, we talked about people using those bones for fertiliser. And it's but, in Les Miserables, isn't it? Is it? Yes, the tragic heroine is reduced to selling her teeth. Yeah. So it's quite a common thing because human teeth obviously are the best replacements. And there were lots of earlier examples um, of using things like ivory, for example, but none of that is ever as good. Clearly, wood isn't really going to work. Animal teeth as well being used. But again, not really that well. But that actually goes back a really long way. So we have false teeth going back to the Etruscan tombs with bridges. So not whole dentures, but bridges actually using a band of gold with either animal or human teeth placed in them. So they're found really? in these jaws, which I think is quite interesting. Soviet, in Soviet Russia, they had stainless steel teeth. Mm. You see it sometimes at the end of the 80s, 90s, someone would smile and it's just like... Yes. Like that James Bond baddie. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's a sort of, yeah. But the we know that there's Roman classical sources as well talking about false teeth. Again, not usually not in very nice terms. So there's a few references to women uh, having false teeth, older women. And one of them is somebody insulting somebody else saying, at night you take off your teeth just like your silk robe. <laughs> <laughs> very rude about that. But actually, um, in terms of prospects of limbs, so talking about your leg falling off, just in case. And there's some really early written examples of that. And the oldest one goes back to three and a half thousand years ago to India, to Vedas, so the, the um, Vedic literature, actually, uh, so Indian literature. And there's a story in one of them about a battle with a queen called Visphala who uh, receives a blow that amputated one of her legs and when it heals she was fitted with an iron leg so that she could go back to the battlefield and uh, continue fighting. Brilliant. So obviously we haven't found any real evidence for that going that far but the oldest uh, limb, prosthetic limb is a toe from uh, Egypt which dates uh, back to about 3,000 years ago and it was found... <laughs> Why? Or how? Well... Is it right that if you if you don't have a big toe, it's very difficult to walk because it does such a job in 
It does half the foot's work, I does, believe. And for balance as well. Mm. So it is definitely worth it. And interestingly, this one, so it was found in a, in a mummy uh, of this woman who is likely to have been a high status priest's daughter. She was called Tabakatenmut. And we think she might have di- had lost her toe from diabetes. It's this beautifully carved wooden toe and it's got a strapping mechanism. Apparently it looks really comfortable. Because the question is, was it just for the afterlife? Because of oh, course yes. the ancient Egyptians, the body being whole was very, very important, which is why you go through all that trouble to put things back together again. So you have some earlier examples, one that was found in the 1880s, which was basically just a papier-mâché toe. Mm. And obviously it wasn't going to be very much. Wait, I can make you a papier-mâché leg if you like, Richard. Yes. Just, I'm up for anything. If that helps. Um, but this idea of, um, so when we find them in graves and archaeologically, it's always, you know, are they actually real? Could they have used them? Or were they for the afterlife? Because there's lots of sides, and I'm going to have to get back to the Vikings again. I'm sorry, and you, no, can, uh, you might you might like this one. So one of the the skeletons that I worked on in one of my work from Repton in Derbyshire was a man who was killed quite viciously in battle with lots of injuries. One of those injuries is a huge blow with an axe that goes across his uh, left thigh. There's a huge big cut through it at an angle. Now between his legs, it was placed a bull's tusk right in between. So the interpretation is that he would have probably lost his penis as well mm. with that blow. And so when they buried him to make him whole again in the afterlife... Um, it's bad enough when you said they cut stuff. him across his hip bone, but the penis thing, crikey. Well, it happens a lot, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it must be. You know. Blast injuries often take away the male genitals in yes. ways that are very difficult for people to cope with. And there are... Well, you can tell us about prosthetics. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting one because it seems like it's by belief that you have to be complete in the afterlife. So obviously he was killed by all of this, but reconstituted for the next life, which I think is a lot of the Egyptian ones as well. But in terms of actual prosthetics, what we have found evidence of. So there are some slightly earlier ones. There's one, the earliest artificial leg that anyone's ever found dates back to 300 BC from Italy, from a grave there again. And it was a bronze leg with a wooden core, which seems to have been used for a below-the-knee amputee. So it's a really nice one, actually. It doesn't have a foot, but it seems like the foot was detachable, possibly a wood. And it ended up in England, actually. It was in a museum in London until it was destroyed during an air raid. But there's still a copy of it. There's this ancient bronze leg. But again, we've got lots of ancient literature talking about prosthetics. So the classical world seems to have had quite a lot of them. They are typically mentioned in passing, really. And uh, there's names of various accounts and stories and poems. And uh, you have various generals. There's a Roman general who lost his right hand and uh, battling in the Second Punic War and had a replacement hand fashioned out of iron so that he could still hold a, a shield. So clearly this was something that was being done and we have a lot of textbooks on amputations. They're very interested in what you can do to help save people if they need to lose a limb. They don't actually describe the prosthetics at all so it's only when they survive in sort of oblique references. But apparently they, when they are described it seems like rather than thinking that they had to look very natural you had to essentially be honest about it. So you weren't allowed to pretend that you had an arm if you didn't. So you had to sort of make them quite obvious, apparently, which seems to be a, a thing. But then, but then talking about amputations of limbs, I, you just made me remember the really unfortunate orderly in the American Civil War. The surgeon wanted to show off how quickly he could saw off somebody's arm. 
And he also took off the orderly's fingers, who was holding the arm, because he did it so quickly. And you just think, these are the sort of forgotten victims of history, really. Just trying to help. Yes. Well, it just takes two of your fingers off. Yes. It must be really quick. Yes. It was, it was about, just over a minute, I think. That's Dear. quite. Yeah. And did they survive? The okay. orderly survived. Poor yeah. chap. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. <laughs> but so, um, so from that point on, I mean, the modern prosthetics that we know about really come into after the, the Middle Ages. So 16th century, uh, a German, uh, for example, had a, a very technologically advanced pair of iron hands made when he lost his right arm in a battle that can be actually manipulated properly. So that point on, you get what we think of as more like modern prosthetics from the 16th century. And it's Later, when we have various wars, the American Civil War, for example, again, there's so many injuries and so many quite serious injuries that there's a, a drastic number in the rise of amputees and then those prosthetics become developed. And again, later on in the World Wars as well, so Second World War onwards, you start to, to really have that modern prosthetic uh, movement. But I do like some of those earlier ones and I think it seems quite likely that you have a lot of wood being used as well. So obviously think of the pirate peg legs and all of that. <laughs> But they tend to not be preserved, so we don't really know that much about them. I remember seeing a man with a peg leg. First trip abroad, Mallorca, 1974 or something, I think. And down at the harbour in Palma, there was an old fisherman and he had a peg leg, like something from a film, still being used and worn in the 1970s in the Balearic Islands. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. No, I don't know if you can still get. You can still get legless in the Balearic Islands. It's <laughs> yes. <quite> different. It's <laughs> very good. So obviously, there's so many gory stories and examples, but I think my favourite one, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to give you nightmares again, Richard. <laughs> there was one example again from Rome of a grave dating to the first century where they found a tooth that didn't look like the others and they had a look at it and it was an implant so rather than just a sort of loose one fastened on top it was a proper implant but it was iron so they made an iron tooth and actually and properly drilled it into the bone it in. yeah but it seemed to have been almost accepted by the body so the bone had grown around it and it Can you imagine worked. the hygiene on that in that you didn't know about hygiene and you're putting a piece of metal into your bloodstream yes iron as well yes <laughs> the lengths bad. that people would go to to try to compensate for the loss of something like a tooth or a, or a hand or a but foot. But if you think about it, you know, for hundreds of, well, forever, really, and particularly after, as Kat explained the other week about sugar, imagine how rotten people's mouths must have been and how painful, Awful. just a day-to-day pain. Yes, and yeah. practicality, because yeah. you're not necessarily chopping up things as finely and as we do and softening no. things, so you need your teeth. My friend Johnny... Johnny Peacock, he's a Paralympian and he won a gold medal. And he has a running blade, you know, one of those things like mm-hmm. a bouncy yes. blade, which is on his, where he doesn't, he's missing a foot. And then he has a sort of dancing blade as well. And then he has a sort of best foot, which is an articulated foot that you can put a shoe on and everything. But he has a sort of suite now of prosthetics that are fine tuned to his needs. Fantastic. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I love that. And I think some of the technology that's being used as well with actually being able to control them. It seems like a hugely... Going in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And also you can do... I was thinking, because I met Johnny on Strictly, and it's really interesting because people started... Well, I remember going into school the next day after Johnny had done a particularly good thing, and people saying, oh, we want a blade, we want a blade, we want a blade, because all of a sudden it started to look like a really cool thing rather yes. than yes. something people were embarrassed about, you know? That's right. <laughs> they really do. Yeah. Right then, Richard. Ah, hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. 
Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought-after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. I think it's on to you again now. And you are back on the flowers. You are a floral detective. Yes. Tell us about rhododendrons, please. Rhododendrons, two Greek words, of course, meaning tree and rose. They were first called Alpen roses when they arrived in these parts where they uh, were first sort of established. We didn't really know what they were. Now, I was in Scotland last week. And if you know Scotland, particularly the west of Scotland, you will know very well that in May and June, it's almost overtaken by the rambling, rambling presence of rhododendron ponticum, which is the form you see most commonly. Big, big rhododendron bushes, these bright, bright, bright purple flowers that get everywhere. In fact, it's now an invasive species because they're so successful. They were brought in originally when rhododendrons were a thing for big shooting estates because they provided such great cover for birds. So people put them in and then they've just rampaged now. And I think there's something like 60,000 hectares of Scotland has now been taken by them. And it's bad because nothing thrives in their shade. So they are bad, 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 bad. But rhododendrons of course such a feature of Scottish gardens such a feature of Cornish gardens wherever the soil is acid because famously like azaleas to which they are related did you know that Linnaeus not quite your countryman but not far off when he did his um, extraordinary feat of classification put rhododendrons and azaleas as separate species because the rhododendron has 10 stamens and the azalea has 5 but in fact they were revisited and put together again because actually they're the same sort of thing. Not the first time that the rhododendron has conquered the earth. In fact, they really did conquer the earth before the Ice Age because before the Ice Age, they were absolutely everywhere. We know this. And then after the Ice Age, with the creation of different geography and topography and all that, they retreated into the places, well, basically into the Himalaya, sort of pan shape from Himalaya through into China. And then the archipelago, which connects Asia to Australasia, you know, the Philippines, New Guinea, places like that. But in fact, you find them in all sorts of ways. North America, you'll find them. There's over a thousand species. They're everywhere. And it is not true that they only thrive on acid soils because we've found lots of rhododendrons that do perfectly well on limestone rock. So that's a bit of a myth that needs a bit of busting. Also, did you know you can get them in both deciduous and coniferous forms? Over a thousand species, as I said. So there they are. When did they become a big thing. Well, when the world began to open up, like so many things that became a feature of life in somewhere like Britain, they were imports that came in as a consequence of colonial expansion and then the opening up of the world through trade, through military conquest, through economics, whatever it might be. And there are some very significant people in this story. Heroes, for example, Père David. Now, I know you like him, Charles. Why do you like Père David? Well, it's an alcohol thing, isn't it? I <laughs> know, <laughs> oh, that's Poir William. <laughs> Père David, he no, provided an adornment for your own park. Now, you see, this is why I find it difficult with Richard sometimes, because he just shows up my willful ignorance. The deer. 
Oh, yes, of course. No, Pair no. Pair de Haven't you got Pair no, de No, we haven't. Because oh. that really would be embarrassing if I had them and I didn't know what they <laughs> well, were. No, no, but I'm I have seen, no, I have seen them. Because remember, Pair de yes. was this extraordinary. He was a Lazarist priest and a missionary, and he went out into China. And while he was there, not just to spread the gospel, he also was a great botanist and a naturalist and a zoologist. And he collected creatures and brought them back. Mm. Pair de deer being one of them, for example. But also uh, azalea. So they came back. China, interestingly, opened up after 1860, the Second Opium War, Mm-hmm. when the Qing dynasty, I think it was the Qing dynasty, yes it was, fell to an alliance of basically Britain and France, a little bit of Russia thrown in there as well. And as they kind of settled that, of course, one of the consequences of that was Hong Kong and Kowloon and all those things, but also the opening up of China to the opium trade, but also the opening up of China to naturalists and botanists. So people would scamper across that newly open land. People like fascinating person, Augustine Henry, who was an Irishman, who ended up, I think, sort of running the Forestry Commission. He was kind of collecting lots of stuff there. The most famous person of all parts of that lot was the famous Sir Joseph Hooker, Joseph Talton Hooker. His father was the director of Kew Gardens. And uh, in the 1840s, great friend of Charles Darwin, trained as a medical doctor, and then he went off to the polar expeditions, including on Erebus, do you remember, as a sort of medic. But so many of the people who were distinguished in this field actually were medics originally, perhaps it's because of the way they investigated the world. But he was the one who penetrated the sort of Himalayan fastness, where most of the greatest and most exciting varieties of rhododendron thrive. He went to Sikkim, Sikkim, which was a sort of land that was forbidden to anyone from the English expansion, British expansion into India. He went with it and he made his way into Sikkim, which is also extremely difficult to get to because it's isolated, remote in Himalayan. But also he got into trouble with the ruler of Sikkim and ended up being imprisoned for a bit too. So it was kind of a risky business. And collecting specimens was a very risky business too, but collect them he did. And so if you go to some of the great rhododendron gardens of the west of Scotland, there's lovely Mm. ones in Galloway, for example, where I've just been. This extraordinary variety of flowers, yellow, Is blue. that because they're getting the Gulf Stream? Is that it? Do they thrive in that sort of climate? Well, partly what you have in the Rins of Galloway in particular, you have the benefit of the Gulf Stream. So you have somewhere like Logan Botanic Garden, for example. You'll find lots of species there that normally grow in Australia or South America. And it's to do with the balmy climate that comes with being situated where they are. But also the soil there favours rhododendrons. So you get these wonderful, wonderful rhododendron gardens. Such a feature of great estates and parks in the in the 19th century when it became a huge thing and people became absolutely... There was a, the chap who popularised um, the cult of the tulip in the 17th century was also a rhododendron. Rhodes, people who like rhododendrons, we call them rhodes and they're a societies and they get totally into it. Have you got any rhododendrons at, at all, Trip? Well, we've tried. The soil isn't quite right and they have to be planted in a particularly deep way if you're going... I.e., you need to pack them with that soil. But I do remember we grew up on the Sandringham estate in Norfolk, which was, going back to what you're saying, is it was a big shooting estate. That's why it was bought by Edward VII. And there are massive wilderness areas of rhododendrons there everywhere. And yes, they are beautiful for three months a year or so. But the rest of the time, they're just quite an imposing presence. I, hate, I say that because I was going to ask you, are they a favourite of yours or is it, are they just an interest of yours? They are a favourite of mine, but because I associate them with those exciting gardens of Cornwall mm. and Scotland, the places where it's... I mean, I suppose I grew up in a world of the English cottage garden, I guess, and all that kind of planting, which I love, don't get me wrong. But I am interested in things that are different, and the rhododendron is perhaps such an important plant for people who are trying to make gardens in those sorts of places. So many lost... Go- I was up in Scotland, I was in Kintyre, and I was staying in a place, it was an old 18th century sort of Laird's house, a Scottish Enlightenment replacement for a castle that had 
fallen down. So it's quite big, quite plain, in a very wild and remote place. And there was a lost rhododendron garden there. Most of it's surrounded, actually, by Ponticum, which was rampaging, getting everywhere. But then all of a sudden, you discovered by pushing through undergrowth, usually because the dog was chasing a rabbit, actually, that there were wonderful rhododendrons in all sorts of different colours. Extraordinarily diverse. The rhododendron can be as small as four inches high, and some grow to a height of 100 feet. They are a very, very various and exciting species. And the characters associated with them, I mean, Hooker was such a fascinating person. Kew Gardens went crazy for them. Capability Brown set out what became the rhododendron dell, which was so famous. Pizarro, uh, the post-impressionist who was painting in London in the 1890s, in 1892, did a famous painting of the rhododendron dell at Kew Gardens. Kew, of course, famous for being a sort of source, not just for, for Britain, but for the world of, of these rare species. And it hadn't been for places like Kew and places like Hooker. It wouldn't have happened. I've got a favourite fact. Oh, yes, oh. please. 410 BCE, Xenophon leads his armies of Greeks away from Babylon, where they've been fighting like Bilio, and he finds himself at Trebizond on the Black Sea. His army is exhausted and starving, but the buzzing of innumerable bees, the presence of innumerable beehives alerts him to the fact that there's honey there. So the soldiers who are famished fall upon these honeycombs and eat their fill of the luscious, sticky, sweet honey and all fall into a stupor. Some of them, according to the historical accounts, actually die. Reason, the bees were fed on pollen from rhododendrons, which is toxic. Ooh. Now, you should keep rhododendrons away from horses in particular. If a horse eats a rhododendron, it's very bad news for the horse. And also, from dogs don't like it either. But this story, there's another one actually about Mithridates IV, a bit later on in history. The same thing. The armies of Pompey were poisoned by this honey. And I love this idea about rhododendrons, so beautiful, so prized, also having this kind of suggestion of toxicity and evil, these kind of luxurious, flamboyant things. And where did we encounter that? Well, Daphne du Maurier, who lived in Cornwall, of course, and wrote that great, great novel, Rebecca. What was the symbol of Rebecca? It was a red rhododendron. The idea being beautiful to look at, luscious, luxurious, but also toxic. Although, interestingly, the second Mrs. de Winter in that novel, whose name we never discover, is symbolised by the azalea. That's so interesting, because that binds them together again at yeah. the end. Very good. That's lovely. I like the, the toxicity in Mithridates, because Mithridates the Great was terrified about being poisoned. That was his phobia. Was that the fourth? Well, I, I don't know. I know him as the Great. <laughs> there were quite a few of them. So to counter the possibility of being poisoned, he took little bits of poison to inoculate himself against it. And this was all very well until he was defeated by the Romans and realized he was going to be humiliated in a triumph in Rome and possibly executed and tried to poison himself, and it didn't work because oh, no. he was immune. And so in the end, he had to get one of his guards to run him through with a sword. But uh, yeah. A tricky duty, that, isn't it? I've always wondered about that when you ask your personal guard to run you through. Do Although, they say, sorry, sorry first? And then <laughs> well, well, maybe you just think, you know, last I'm free. Finally. Yes. But I'm talking in Scandinavia, Kat, mm. do you have rhododendrons? Are they common there? Waiting for you to ask me that because I don't think they are very common. No, I don't, I don't think they think grow so. very well at all. Possibly a few areas, but I have to say that's they, they, they like sort of 
They might do well in the west of Norway because mm. they like sort of moist and warm as opposed to, I mean, a lot of Norway isn't very warm, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> Known for its heat. So yeah, west coast, south coast perhaps. Yes. But, um, Bergen, no, around the Bergen Do you area. like them? I do. I don't really know them very well, I guess, because I haven't grown up with them. So, no, I've only encountered them quite recently. They are quite pretty, aren't they? What do you think, Charles? I think they're very dramatic in a bank. I don't know the tiny ones you're talking of, the four-inch ones. I don't know the hundred-foot ones. But the ones I'm thinking of are really sort of giant bushes of maybe 12, 15 feet. And they can look great. But particularly, you know, obviously when they're in flower, the rest of the time, I, I think they're quite bleak. Yes. And also Ponticum. It's just it's this thing, you look at it, it looks so beautiful, then after a while you realise that it's actually just taking everything over. Yes, there's nothing you're absolutely right. I mean it just is almost like it sucks everything from the soil. And you can't you can pull them up but they'll just keep coming. They're very, very difficult to get rid of. Yes. So there you go, a mixed blessing for those <laughs> Yes, very nice. Fascinating, though. And we have a comment, I think, from our disembodied voice. The Arboretum in Bergen cat has the largest collection of rhododendron species in Scandinavia. And there are also two native wild species to Sweden of the flower. Uh, and Richard, the name that you were searching for was Charles Lecluse, the Flemish botanist, That's right. who was the uh, essentially laid the foundations of the Dutch tulip bulb industry. It was big on roadies as well. Very big on roadies. There you go. Very good. I point. said Bergen. You did. You get an extra point, I <laughs> that think. That was a fluke. <laughs> I was just thinking of somewhere wet and yeah. warm. Well, that's, that's Bergen for you. Yes. <laughs> so two... Peacocks, which is our final topic and your rabbit hole for today, Charles. Yes, I was really pleased to be given this one because one of my neighbours at home is Tim the Peacock, named by one of my daughters when she was about seven or eight. A splendid name for a splendid bird. And uh, he's become a bit of a celebrity, really. I mean, people come from around the world to go around Althorpe in the summer and they tend to ask, where is Tim? And he's not, well, actually, I was about to say he's not stupid, but that would be an unfair uh, <laughs> summation of Tim's intelligence. Tim, like all peacocks being the male, peafowl being the species, peacocks get very pumped up with testosterone in the spring and summer. And this is a dangerous time for my car because Tim tends to attack his reflection. He thinks there's another peacock on the prowl. Uh, he does actually have a rival called Jim the Peacock, who's too young to take him on. And actually, I once rented a house in South Africa and came downstairs a awful noise and blood everywhere and somebody's peacock had got in and attacked itself in the reflection of the cooker oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're dealing with a bird of uh, minimal brain but maximum beauty and throughout history there's always been rather more to it than its plumage and it's really crossed cultures in terms of being a symbol of good and evil and death and resurrection and vanity and pride underpinning superstitions I don't know, Richard, you you have this extraordinary breadth of knowledge. Um, What is a group of peacocks called? I have no idea. An ostentation. (gasps) Ostentation. Which is the perfect, perfect description of a bird so splendid. And we know that it was part, in Greek mythology, the the Greeks were trying to understand how is it possible for a bird to be so beautiful. And it was meant to have sprung from the blood of, of a figure called Argos Panoptes, who was a hundred-eyed giant who was a, a guardian who worked for Hera, the chief goddess, as it were. And when he was killed defending her, his hundred eyes were apparently placed in the plumage of the peacock. 
And we see him across all forms of uh, ancient cultures and religions. An old Hindu proverb states that the peacock has the feathers of an angel, the voice of the devil, and the walk of a thief. And it is this extraordinary combination. So you've got the beauty of the top bit. It does walk in a very peculiar way, a very inelegant way. And I'm afraid the cry is really appalling. And with the testosterone of spring and early summer comes lighter days. And you, I'm used to now, three or four in the morning, hearing him cry. And actually, when Kat and her archaeologists were staying with me recently and we were digging up a Roman villa, one of the ladies who accompanies you, a doctor called Peter, grew to hate and curse Pete, <laughs> yes. uh, poor old Tim, uh, quite, quite regularly. There was a lot of mumbling about peacock pie in the morning. So Can you do the noise? I can't. (laughs) There we are. I'm the one who can't do it, and you too can. But that's an interesting one. So that goes back to one of Aesop's fables, actually, because he's been uh, very unhappy, the peacock, about certain aspects. And Aesop, in his fables, looked at sort of human foibles. And in his one called The Peacock's Complaint, it involves a peacock oblivious to his splendid beauty, complaining, why does the nightingale have a beautiful voice and I don't? And Juno responds, envious bird that you are, I'm sure you have no cause to complain. On your neck shine all the colours of the rainbow and your extended tail gleams like a mass of glittering gems. Cease then to complain or the gifts you have shall be taken away. So I have to say that peacocks have been valued for their meat. Uh, You mentioned peacock pie just now. And that was one of the reasons. They were first introduced to England, we think, in about the 14th century as a splendid spectacle. But they soon became a very convenient source of protein and maintained that sort of dual purpose until the introduction of the turkey from Mexico in the 16th century, I believe. And I can't bear it when having got peacocks, I've now got um, about nine pea fowl. The idea of eating them is absolutely anathema to me. I can't imagine it at all. But can, John, it doesn't look like a meal. Does it? I mean, you think, why on earth would you want to eat a peacock? So the whole point of a peacock is to ostentate. Yes, but you would ostentate on the dinner plate as well. Oh. So you would skin them, cook them, rather like a goose or a turkey, and then quite often at a, at a, a large banquet the skin and feathers would be put back on to present an absolutely extraordinary-looking oh. meal, which is a terrible end for such a beautiful thing. They did it with swans as well, didn't they? Same thing. Absolutely, okay. yes. And it's funny how, I mean, why is it any different? You know, we think, how could you possibly eat that? But, of course, you know, it's no different to eating a, uh, any other large bird. But, you know, the Victorians took against the peacocks because of this perceived vanity. What I love about this podcast is finding really fascinating characters. And I have found a man with the name of the Reverend Thomas Dick, who saw a splendid meteor as a child when he was aged nine. And this hooked him into celestial observations. And as a child, he ground down somebody's spectacles and turned them into a a very, very basic telescope with which he studied the sky. But then later, he became a Presbyterian preacher, excommunicated for having an affair. But he was convinced that science and religion were connected. 
And he had this rather bizarre belief that every planet was inhabited. And he worked out there must be 21 trillion humans in the galaxy. <laughs> but his obsession was the vanity of the peacock. And he, he would write saying, it's so wicked that it will scarcely live with any other bird except the pigeon. And it tears and spoils everything it gets a hold with its bill. So essentially, he saw it as a source of really appalling ill behavior. And this chimed with earlier findings. Uh, we find in Renaissance art, that the deadly sin of vanity is often represented by a peacock. I think that one of the most extraordinary things about the peacock is how ubiquitous it is as a symbol. And that's really testimony to how extraordinary, uniquely splendid it is as a bird. I cannot think of a single other bird. There are many beautiful birds of paradise, etc. But there isn't one to compete with the peacock. And particularly when Tim the peacock is in his pomp looking for a mate, and he's shimmering his magnificent tail. There's no sight like it. How did that evolve? What evolved? Did the peacock's tail and plumage evolve to just be ostentatious? Or did our admiration of it evolve into an aesthetic? Because you look at so much of Art Nouveau, of course. Mm. So much of that was inspired. The Tiffany, all that other peacock oh, yes. shape, peacock colours were a thing, weren't they? It came yes. into our consciousness and our aesthetics. Well, it's been very much borrowed uh, as a branding exercise, too. I mean, I, I used to work for 10 years for NBC in America. It's known as the Peacock Channel from a marketing device in 1956. They wanted to show off that they had all the color uh, broadcasting of, available. But it's often been seen as a, a particularly bleak thing in people's lives. We have a Greek philosopher, Pythagoras, of course, who was pro it. But then you move into more recent times. And we have people saying that keeping peacock feathers indoors is bad luck and that if a family does that, then the daughters of the house will not be able to get pregnant. And essentially, on the other side, they were used as a symbol of the Eucharist and also of the afterlife. The afterlife and resurrection they became symbols of because people observed that peacock feathers, unlike nearly every other bird, don't ever lose their luster. They last forever. Yeah. Did you know that there were some peacock feathers found in the late 9th century Viking ship, Gokstor ship burial, um, as grave goods? The so. least peacocky people in the world, the Vikings, <laughs> yes. and yet they have peacocks. <laughs> well, at least definitely have the feathers. Here's the thing, right? I was in the Greater Ran of Kutch, where peacocks live in the wild. And it's just an extraordinary thing. They roost in trees. And I'm so yes. used to seeing peacocks sort of striding across the lawn of an English house that I, I hadn't sort of imagined that they had a sort of home life too, but They're, they do. The ones in England are trying to avoid a fox, really. I mean, one of the most incredible things about peacocks, I find this so astonishing, is they nest on the ground. And we are peahens, the female peacocks, of course, are white and somehow they managed to survive. The last three we had, one of them had no young, but the other two brought up five young living on the ground in a part of England which is infested with fox. Somehow, foxes, somehow they must be very still and, and not full of scent. You know, it's an extraordinary thing to think of. I'd like to get to my sort of my favorite fact, if I may. Yes, please. please. So I really don't like people eating peacocks. I think it's, a, it's terribly rude, frankly, to eat something <laughs> quite so beautiful. And the Iranians like to think of themselves as, well, pre-revolution of having been availed of the peacock throne. In fact, the peacock throne was Indian, but in 1739, the Iranians captured, or the Persians captured the peacock throne, and that has been the symbol. And in 1971... 
the last Shah of Iran decided to celebrate the two and a half thousandth anniversary of his monarchy with an unbelievable display of wealth and power at the Persepolis, the remains of the Persepolis. And he invited 18 presidents and eight kings and an emperor. He laid on air-conditioned tents and an artificial oasis. He brought in flowers from Versailles and 50,000 songbirds from Europe, most of whom, I'm afraid, didn't make it because it was too hot for them. And all of this was done against a backdrop of 51% of Iranian citizens being on the edge of starvation. And it was the beginning of the end. And I, I like to think that part of the... The reason for the downfall of the Shahs of Iran is because the main course at the main banquet was roast peacock. Oh. And one of the other delicacies served was peacock tongues. Apparently that was a thing. You wouldn't have thought you'd get much out of that. And this was the beginning, although it was 1971. It cost, you know, I mean, an unbelievable amount of money. It's very hard to compute how much it would be today. But essentially, it was referred to as the Devil's Feast. And it was the thing that united the opposition parties in Iran to counter the Shah. And uh, in 1979, they brought him down. So I think the peacock got his revenge. Where do you get one, John? There are peacock breeders. You have to be careful. You're not... I mean, you have to look at the bloodline because they, they can actually interbreed for... So a peacock could fertilize its daughter, but you don't want to go beyond that. I get letters from peacock dealers saying, you haven't bought one from me for ages and we've got a new batch. You want to go for Indian ones. There are Persian ones and all sorts, but the Indian one has been the most hardy in, in the English climate. Beautiful, beautiful thing, but quite an annoying neighbour. Yeah. I like the shriek. I do too. Actually, Richard, I'm on the same page as you, but a lot of people hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they can stick some reverb on that disembodied voice. Yes, <laughs> proper. Very good. Well, I do like... Tim, I have to say he looks a little bit evil sometimes when he looks at you when you drive past. But I think I'd substitute dim, dim. Uh, <laughs> okay. but but not That's in a better. nasty. I don't think okay. he's nasty. I just don't, I don't think he's a very questioning creature. No, maybe not. <laughs> I like the way he's always on the move, sort of trots along. Yeah, he? he's always on patrol. I think it's endlessly exhausting checking that there's no other male coming onto your patch. Yeah, right. you should train him as a security yeah. guard or something. <laughs> <laughs> better. Right, so that brings us to the end of this week's episode and we can't get away from the last part, which I know we all love, which is when we find out who the disembodied voice undemocratically elects as the Bef winner. Before that, can you say that, you know, you had like wooden legs and you had <laughs> peacock, so, you know, I think there should be some handicap applied to that because I'm talking about rhododendrons. I think there's, you know. Let's equalise this a little bit. I'm not saying massage the vote or anything. I'm just saying let's just think about the optics. You know? Kat and I are speechless at yeah, your brazenness. Can't even <laughs> comment on that, actually, Richard. I think let's see what the disembodied voice thinks of that sort of behaviour. I mean, it's outrageous, quite frankly. It's very difficult this week, but minimum beauty and maximum brain, and for his peacock impression, it's Richard. Yes. Well, well actually, done. I feel a weight off our shoulders, Kat, because it's getting a bit tense in here, isn't it? I know, I know. I think that was, was a bad <laughs> time, You looked it? at me, Charles, and there's an unmistakable look of a man looking down on a loser, I felt earlier, <laughs> which is an uncomfortable feeling. I just thought you should know. No, I obviously needed my caffeine <laughs> shot and was glazing over. <laughs> no, well, well done. Well, well done, Richard. Done. I no, thought that was you. thoroughly deserved, and you, yes. do, you do bring flowers to life. <laughs> Thank you. Larry's sort of personality, yes. 
<laughs> so then, before we go, we have to decide on our topics for next week. And Richard, can you dig into the world of condiments? Oh, please? yes, please. Mm. And Charles, you have decided you would like to go for one-eyed warriors. Yes, well, I like things that are a bit niche. One-eyed yes. warriors. Well, there's so many warriors, I just wanted to narrow it down oh, a bit. Oh, well, I think the eye patch. Well, following on from the prosthetics, I think we yes. have a theme going. And I'm sort of going a bit warrior-y as well, but I'm going, because we're going to be back in Chippenham and Wiltshire next mm -hmm. week, so I was going to do a bit of local history and talk about the Viking Great Army here in Chippenham. No. Yes. Really? Yes. I'll tell you all about it next week. They got around, didn't they? They did. They Them really Vikings. did. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. As always, we really appreciate that you're tuning in every week. And if you liked what you heard, please do subscribe and leave us a review. And don't forget to tell all your friends and family and neighbours about it as well. It really helps people find us when they're searching for something to listen to. You can also suggest other rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And thank you to everyone who's done so, so far. Don't forget that every week, one of us will be writing our Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph, where you can read more about our favourite facts. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I never get involved in politics. Goodbye. 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 <laughs> first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.